songs, now we have Dr. Wilson. Thank you, Elder Chell. Good morning, family. Good morning. I missed you guys. So good to see you. Are you glad to see your neighbors today? I can't tell. You haven't high-fived them one time. High-five somebody and tell them I'm glad you're here. Yes. Glad you are here. Sister Wilson and I had to travel to California to check on our children there and uh, visit our uh, young church plant there as well. And then we had to speak on behalf of the college at a, a sister church in Wheaton last week, but I couldn't wait to get back to you. It is just good to be here. Amen? Amen. And I feel like preaching today. So bow your head with me for a word of prayer and strap in because here we go. Father, thank you so much for my RCC family. Thank you for this privilege that we have to do life with each other. Thank you for all the amazing opportunities you have given us over the next couple of weeks that if you delay your coming, we get to serve our community. We get to give to help those who are less than fortunate. We get to love on one another. We get to be salt and light in a dying world. We thank you today that we have now this privilege to worship you in the studying of your word. So we pray that you would open our eyes and you would open our ears, that we may see and hear what your spirit has to say to the church. We do thank you for the prayers that have been lifted this morning. We thank you again for our elders, our leaders, and all those who make up this great gospel train. Meet us now at your table, and in this time in your word is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, thank God, amen. For those who are online, our text this morning as well is found in the gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 5, verses 17 through 26. We are picking up in our exegetical walk through the book of Luke where we left off. So... I hope you are ready to study God's word today, and I hope you brought your best amen this morning. All right, I'm going to need you to help talk to me as we preach through this text. If you're ready, say, I'm ready, Pastor. I'm ready. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by, who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Then, behold, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find how they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop and let him down with his bed through the tiling into the mist before Jesus. Now, when he saw their faith, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this 
who forgives blasphemies. And who can forgive sins but God alone? But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, rise up and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been lying on, and departed into his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed, and they glorified God, and were filled with fear, saying, We have seen strange things today. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Today we're going to talk about forgiven and healed. Forgiven and healed. Beloved, when we come back to the passage on today, Jesus has come back to Capernaum. And the word has gotten out now that the master is back in the house. The home I'm referring to belongs to Andrew and Peter. Remember last time he was there, he healed Peter's mother-in-law. You remember that? The crowd that met him last time has come back again. And this time, it's bigger than it was before. They came so close to the house that they did not just meet him outside, but now they've made their way inside. And the house is filled with people who have a need for Jesus. Oh, I'm glad right there because I see a lot of folks here today that have a need for Jesus. Can I tell you why this is important, family? The master's ministry was so big, it had taken off and so popular that he could now be nowhere in secret. Everywhere that Jesus went, people met him or mobbed him because of the ministry that God had given to him. The scripture says in this text that he preached the word to them, wait for it, here it comes, and the power of God was present to heal them. Isn't that beautiful? I see something here that's connected with preaching and the power to heal. Oh, yes, it is. Preaching with the power of God has the ability to heal those who need a word from the Lord. There are four things in this passage today I want to unpack. Now, since I've been away uh, two weeks, I want to borrow a few minutes, all right? <laughs> Number one I want to talk about today, the paralytic position. Number two, I want to look at the paralytic partners. Number three, I want to look at the paralytic pardon, and then I'll land the plane looking at the Pharisaic problem. Let's unpack them together as a family as we study God's word. Number one, the paralytic 
position. Verse 18. The Bible says, Then, behold, men brought on a bed another man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in into this house and lay him before Jesus. RCC, when we come to this portion of the text, the first thing we get to see is that the man in this narrative has a horrible position that he is stuck with in life. We don't know how he got this way, the Bible doesn't say. We don't know what caused his paralysis. We don't know his name, his circumstances, his upbringing, even his personality inventory. All we know is that this brother is in bad shape. He's paralyzed and he's unable to move. He can't dress himself. He can't comb his hair. He can't brush his teeth. He can't put on his sandals. He can do nothing for himself. And he is in need of healing. He's in need of saving. He's stuck in a bad situation against his will. Guess what? He's unable to save himself. This brother, he needs a savior. Charles Swindoll, that great preacher, said these powerful words. He says, Wilson, every problem that humans have is an opportunity to prove God's power. Did you catch that? What's he getting at? He wants to remind us that God wants to use the problems in our life to demonstrate who he is. Okay, let me say it this way. Maybe I'll get an amen. Did you know your problem is never on the same level with God? When you take your problem and put it on the same level with God, you're bringing God down to a level that he's only human. Come on, talk to me, somebody. God supersedes your problems. And that's why God could never have a problem himself. He's God. Where would a problem fit in God's pocket? Swindoll said again, Wilson, every problem is an opportunity to prove God's power. And every day we encounter countless golden opportunities brilliantly described as insurmountable promises. I'm so glad I got little promises because I get to say to God, God, show the world how you're going to work this out. I'm hunting for an amen right there. This word is so true. So I want to invite you today, RCC, I want to invite you with your problem to bring it to Jesus. Why? He's the only one. Who's got power to fix whatever it is you're going through. If you believe that, somebody holler amen. amen. We've looked at the paralytic's position. Let's look now at the paralytic's partners. The text says in verse 19 that these men who were carrying their brother, when they could not find how they might bring him in the house where Jesus was, because of the crowd, they went up to the top of the house and they let him down with his bed through the tiling to bring him in the presence of Jesus. Family, when we come to this portion of the text, you and I get to see several things that should bring us joy. When we think about what it looks like, Brother Will, to serve others who are in need. I'm so glad that Brother Will 
was led by the Lord to bring that ministry before us. See, because according to the Bible, the man's friends, they wanted to bring their brother to Jesus. But when they tried, they had obstacles to come into their way. See, uh, they couldn't get to Jesus because the crowd of people that was in the house refused to move out of the way to let somebody with a greater problem into his presence. And this is interesting when I think about crowd theology and crowd behaviorisms. Listen, this crowd saw this man paralyzed, but they wouldn't move. This crowd knew that life had been cruel to him. He was on a stretcher. They were not, but they would not move. This crowd, yeah, knew the man couldn't help himself, but guess what? They wouldn't move. This crowd knew this brother was in trouble, but they wouldn't move. This crowd knew he was worse off than them, for they were able to walk into the house and occupy some space, but they wouldn't move. I like that right there. A lot of times that's just like church. Yeah, let, let me tell you why. Uh, see, as church people, we have a need of Jesus too. But sometimes we will know people are worse off than us. Instead of us taking time to bring them in, we'll just try to get to Jesus just for ourselves. I guess I'm guilty too of being a Jesus hoarder. I'm trying to get all the Jesus I can get. And every now and then, I forget there's somebody else who's worse off than me, who really needs to get in his presence to be with him. And here's what I noticed in the passage, Elder Hahn, sometimes in the darkest hour of life, it's hard for humanity to get to Jesus. See, people can also get in the way and they can become obstacles from us trying to bring somebody to Jesus. Sometimes it's humanity that makes it hard for the paralyzed crowd to get in and see Jesus. Sometimes, and I know we don't have this problem here in Illinois, but in California, in the place I serve as a church, I, I would say oftentimes, I, I believe God wants us to change our zip code, but the problem is us, it's not God. See, God don't have no problems. He's God. But problems are for us. And God wants us to solve them through the work of the ministry. But sometimes we couldn't get anything done in the church because of us. Sometimes we can be well-meaning, but we can be the very obstacle that keeps somebody from coming to Jesus. Help us, Lord. In fact, I got a couple good questions here I'd like to ask you. Are you an obstacle this morning For the, from the paralyzed Getting to Jesus, are you the one that's standing in the way of your loved one coming to Jesus? Let me ask it this way. Is it your neighbor's attitude or is it yours? Is it your neighbor's personality that's unmovable or is it yours? Is it your body keeping somebody from coming to have their body healed. Perhaps it's your sour disposition. Perhaps you're the hindrance 
Why your cousin, your brother, your son, your daughter, your mama, your dad will not make a decision for Jesus or come to him. Uh, we had a little saying in my church when I would say something that didn't feel good. Like we would just say, it's tight, but it's right. <laughs> yeah. I like this text because it challenges us. It challenges us that, that see somebody in need, but yet uh, we won't do nothing about it. Hmm. The text is teaching me when you look at it, because of this crowd and because of the obstacles, when the men saw that they would not let them in the front door to get to Jesus, guess what they did? The Bible says they went up. There it is. They, they went up on the housetop. And they let him down with his bed. And they let him down through the tiling in the midst of Jesus or right before Jesus. Family, when we come to this portion of the text, you and I get to see what I call is the man's partners. Uh, they operate as amateur engineers. Uh, let me, here's what I mean. They, because they were more concerned with their prosperity of their brother, they got determined to get him an audience with Jesus. Look at what they discover or they share for us. They help as a team, as a community, to carry him <laughs> into the presence of the Lord. I'm trying to contain myself because I see something happening here. Here it is. Their brother is not too heavy. To carry them to Jesus. They got together and said, you get one corner, I'll get the other corner, Mikey. And together, as a community, we're going to carry our brother to Jesus. Why? He's the only one can fix this situation. Here it is. They saw the worth of their brother. They saw the potential in the man. They saw that life was worth living and that their brother was worth saving. And they believed that if Jesus could do what he did in Capernaum last time, now that he's back, he can surely do it again. Sister Wilson, love of my life, I learned in this passage that I can learn from their persistence, their patience, their partnership, and their plan. Can I say that again for the people online? We can, we can learn from their persistence their patience, their partnership, and their plan. Why? They waited on this man hand and foot. They ministered to him through compassion. They tried to usher him into the presence of God because he couldn't do it for himself. Uh, maybe this will help you. They were compassionate. They were caring. They were concerned. And they were creative. Let me say that again. They, they were compassionate, they were caring, they were concerned, and they were creative. And I just looked at a bunch of slides that outline all four of these C's that I think God is speaking to us about as a church. He needs us to be compassionate. He needs us to be caring. He needs us to be concerned. And most of all, we got to be creative. In fact... They found a way when all other avenues seemed blocked. Mm. Here's what I learned, family. When we are filled with the heart of God, no friend, no relative, 
No associate will be too heavy to carry to Jesus. When we are able to see what God is doing around us in the lives of others, we'll understand why it's important that everybody in our community gets to see him, gets to know him. Can I unpack something here for you? Somebody say, yes, Pastor. In Palestinian times back then, did you know that their houses were designed uniquely for things like this? Every home in that time, in this context, would build a secret stairwell on the side of its house. And the houses were all flat roofs. And what they would do is they would take branches and sticks and lay them across the beams of their houses. And then they would take mud and put them over the branches so that if they ever needed to break up the roof or to fix the roof or go down in the house from on top of the roof, they were perfectly okay to do that. So when these men get the idea to carry their brother up to the roof, they already know, number one, this is what we do. Number two, they automatically know nobody's going to be offended by this because in our community, this is how we work together. And then number three, the most beautiful thing here, going up has some beautiful connotations to it. Can I tell you why? See, in order for your brother, your sister to be made well and to be carried in the presence of Jesus, guess what? You got to go up in prayer. You got to go up in compassion. You got to go up in creativity. You got to go up and caring, and then you gotta labor while you up. Help me preach it all. You gotta go up and you gotta labor in that moment. Can I can I lean in and just I'm already preaching, so here I come, y'all. When you get up there, you gotta labor. When you get up there in prayer, you gotta break up some stuff. When you get up there in prayer, you gotta labor until you get your breakthrough. And guess what they do here? They break through in community. They break through in compassion. They break through in caring. They break through. Why? Because their brother matters. Now, I know in our context, we say, you break through my roof, we're going to have a problem, Wilson. Yeah, that's because in our Western context, we don't do community like this. In the Middle Eastern context, community was everything. In the Middle Eastern context, you didn't try to do anything without having the communal uh, conversation together and being on one accord. So the beautiful picture here is they teach the church. Listen, I can't do this by myself. I need you. You need me. Together, we're God's body. Let's do it in community. We've looked at the paralytics position. We've looked at the paralytics partners. Let me show you now the paralytics parting. The Bible says in verse 20, when he saw their faith, it's talking about Jesus here, he said to him, man, your sins are forgiven. Beloved, this is a beautiful picture here. Can you picture Jesus sitting perhaps in Peter's living room 
and the tiling start breaking on the roof. He's looking up and now all of the crowd is looking up and down comes a man on a stretcher and they're standing room only. And when Jesus, the Bible says, saw the partner's faith, <laughs> he said to the man who was paralyzed, your sins are forgiven you. Let me tell you why that's important. It's not the man that has faith to be healed. It's the partners that carried him that has the faith. Sometimes you got to believe for the one you carry. Sometimes you got to have enough faith and enough works to believe that God can do it for the one who has just given up and just is paralyzed by life. I like this right here because uh, somebody had to carry me into the presence of God. Somebody had to carry you into the presence of God. Somebody had to believe enough for you to even ask God to do something supernatural on your behalf. Somebody had to believe for your breakthrough in order for your breakthrough to even happen. And that's so powerful here that the master, when he sees him, he says, your sins are forgiven. Now, can I, can I park the car and put it in idle for just a moment? I got one amen, so I'll take it. <laughs> Jesus doesn't heal him first. He saves him first. The master's first desire was to treat the source of the paralysis, which is sin. Jesus is more concerned with the sin of the man instead of the symptoms that have him paralyzed. Okay, let me argue some more. The symptoms of this man's problem was paralysis, but he was paralyzed because of sin. You see, when Adam and Eve came into the world, they brought in all sorts of diseases, all sorts of problems, all sorts of issues. So every man, every woman, every boy and every girl that's ever been born has been born with the same gene. It's called sin. And there are all types of sin that make us uh, paralytic as we try to do life. You know that the homosexual, the same sex driven person their first problem isn't homosexuality. It's the sin of the heart. The liar, their first sin is not the lie. It's the sin of the heart. The thief, it's not the fact that they steal. The first, the first sin is the heart. The adulterer, the cheat, the self-righteous person, we all got the same paralysis and it's sin. It comes in all shapes and sizes. Tall ones got it, short ones got it. Fluffy ones have it, skinny ones have it. White ones, black ones, brown ones, red ones. All of humanity's got the same problem. We've been paralyzed by sin. And that's why Jesus heals first the sin condition. And then he addresses the symptom. Here I come. I'm feeling pretty good. Can I say some more? 
That's why he doesn't all, all of a sudden change your behaviors right away. He heals your soul, saves your soul first. Then he works on your drinking or he works on your lying or he works on your pride or whatever your sin may be. He heals the soul first and then he fixes the symptoms. But in the church, we got it in reverse. We think if I can just get her or him to stop doing this, that'll fix the problem. No, it won't. You got to first get him or her to Jesus. Yeah, that felt good. And then Jesus heals the soul and then treats the symptoms. We've looked at the paralytic's position. We've looked at the paralytic's partners. We've looked at the paralytic's partner. Let me show you now the Pharisee problem and I'll land the plane. The scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus say this, they began to say or reason among themselves in their minds, who is this that speaks blasphemies? And who can forgive sins but God alone? Notice this. When you come to this final portion of the scripture, we get to see a serious problem in the hearts and in the minds of the religious leaders. Here's what I learned. They actually became upset because Jesus was moved by the paralytic partner's faith. And even though they had come to the house to see Jesus and hear him teach, when they heard him say, son, your sins are forgiven you, they got mad at the word of God. But Jesus perceives their thoughts. And he answers and said to them, why are you guys reasoning in your hearts? Which is it easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk. But that you Pharisees, you religious leaders may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. Jesus said to the one who was paralyzed, I say to you, take up your bed, rise. And go to your house. Wow. Beloved, what a powerful portion of scripture. When Jesus responds to their unbelief and their questions, he sets the house right for what I was just arguing about. It's more important to focus on the person's sin and separation from God than it is their symptoms. Why? Because if you get the soul right, yes, the self will follow. He perceived their thoughts. Here's what I learned about God. God knows the minds of everybody in this room. He already knows what you're thinking and why you're thinking it, even though you haven't said a word. He already knew what they were thinking before they said it. And before a word came out, he addressed what was in their hearts and on their frontal lobes. These teachers thought their ideas about God in their heart and uh, uh, were, were, were triumphing what God has done. And so they were talking against him. But he made the statement that only God could make. He literally catches their thoughts. And I love how he phrased it, and I'm coming down, I'm through preaching, I promise. He said, which is easier, me forgiving his sins or me saying to him, get up, take up your mat and go home? That you may know that God is in the house, get up, son, <laughs> and go home. 
And the Bible says immediately he got up from his paralysis. Immediately he got up from the mat that had him confined. Immediately he got up after hearing the word of God, after hearing the command of Jesus. And his life was changed. This is beautiful. It's beautiful because it teaches me that God is a God of order. Yeah. He never, he never heals first without saving first. He always saves first. And then he heals. He's a God of order. He's a God of order. And that's the beautiful thing about it. When you check scripture from Genesis to Revelation, you see a God of order. You see a God of order proclaiming salvation for man before he even heals man. One day, Sister Esther, there will be a healing that sweeps across the body of Christ. I won't have the issues I have that day. No, because I will be perfectly made just like God has perfectly planned to restore his body. But first, before he heals me, he saves me. And I'm saved now. Waiting on my perfect healing, just like you. He's a God of order. And in his order, guess what I found out? He's a God of mercy. Thank you for letting me borrow a few minutes from my last two weeks. But his mercy is so powerful. Reminds me of a story. There was a mother who had a son who had gotten in trouble with the great Napoleon, a war general. And the emperor was going to kill the mother's son. So the mother went to the emperor, Brother Han, and she, she pleaded with him, please, Mr. Emperor, don't kill my baby. Have mercy on him. Napoleon said to the mom, lady, your son don't deserve mercy for all the things he has done. The mother cried to the emperor, it wouldn't be mercy, Brother Emperor, if he deserved it. I'm not asking because he deserved it. And when Napoleon heard this mother's idea about mercy, he said to her, woman, you're right, nobody deserves mercy. So therefore, I'm gonna pardon your son. Beloved, thank you for coming today. But it was mercy on display in that house where Jesus was. He had mercy on the paralyzed man who didn't deserve to be healed. He had mercy for the ones who carried him to Jesus. He had mercy on the ones who was accusing him even in the house. And it's the same mercy he has on you and me today. He's still having mercy on a paralyzed humanity. And that same mercy is what caused him to come down from heaven to pass through 42 generations to take up an old rugged cross and to get out there on Calvary's hill and take nails in his hand, nails in his feet, a spear in his side, a crown of thorns on his head that you and I might come to the table. That was the mercy of God. When you look at Calvary, nobody in here can stand up with your chest out and say, I deserve to be saved. No, you don't. No, you don't. Mercy 
is what God has on display in the earth today. And I'm so glad he was merciful to a little boy like me from South Central Los Angeles. I'm so glad that the mercy of God redeemed me, saved me, and brought me into an eternal relationship with him. Not only did mercy take my place on the cross, mercy took my place in the grave. In the grave. He took the sting out of death, the Bible says. See, the grave used to hold you until judgment time, but mercy came. An old preacher, a friend of mine said, when Jesus died, he went into the grave, snatched the keys from the devil, fastened them in his girdle, and every early Sunday morning got up with all power of heaven and earth in his head. Mercy was victorious all the way through the grave. And because of mercy, you and I have the opportunity to enter into a perfect, intimate relationship with him. Mercy. So glad he's a God of mercy. Aren't you? Then let's practice being merciful this week to those who may not deserve it. Let's practice being merciful to a mean and hateful generation. Let's practice being merciful for those who need a personal, intimate relationship with God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Bow with me for a word of prayer.